You ever feel in life just even in the most silly of ways that you can't catch a break? Something so insignificant. I had a moment like that this week. I just kind of, I laughed. It was so funny because I was at Lowe's with my dad. We ran into my aunt and uncle. And uh, my dad was talking about how he had bought a grill and got a, a real nice warranty with it. He was pretty excited about it. And I was talking about how I often forget about my warranties. You ever do that? You buy something, you get the warranty, and you forget you have it. And so more recently, whenever I got a warranty, I put a notification in my phone saying warranty expires next month. And so I did that recently at Sports Authority. I bought my son a baseball glove, and, uh, and we got a warranty because basically at the, every year, they, they said you could trade it in and get a new glove, and you get the same value as your original purchase. I thought, man, that's great. As my son grows, he'll need a bigger glove, and I can have that money down and just add a few more bucks. It was great. So I bought the warranty. And so I'm pretty excited about it. I made the notification on my phone. I was real diligent. So we were talking at the store, and I told my aunt and uncle, I was like, you know, I did that recently, but I bought this warranty at Sports Authority, and I went on about it, how excited I was. And my aunt looked at me. She said, you know, they announced yesterday that they're closing in August. And I just looked. I was like, are you serious? And I just started laughing because, like, the one time I'm responsible, I'm excited about warranty, just busted my balloon, and I just thought, that, that's hysterical. And sometimes it's life, life's like that. You're like, really, the, the one thing, I, just, I can't catch a break. And sometimes you feel like, man, that was totally something that was out of the blue in favor of you. I read on CNN this week that a 96-year-old doctor named Henry Heimlich, have you heard this story? Henry Heimlich had a, an interesting encounter. You recognize the last name. 1974, he invented the Heimlich Maneuver. But his article was saying is he never actually performed it on somebody in a moment of need. So he's in a senior living place having dinner, and a lady next to him starts choking on a piece of her hamburger. And here Mr. Heimlich comes up, and he says, I came around her, put my arms right, right above her belly button, below her rib cage." He gave the push, and out came out this hamburger piece, and he, and he saved her. One of the guys who worked there said, you know, I want to go see if you needed help. Of course he didn't. This is, this is Heimlich, you know. The lady says this. She says, oh, gosh, am I lucky that I sat there, and God put me right there at that table right next to Dr. Heimlich. I mean, if you're going to choke, choke next to Dr. Heimlich. Seriously. So there's times where life, you're like, I can't catch a break. And other times, you're like, how did that happen? And we, again, we, we span those two extremes at different times in life. Sometimes it's humorous. Sometimes it's literally life and death. But, you know, when trials do come our way, we, we are confronted with different choices and decisions. When, when life is tar, when we, hard, when we don't feel like we can catch a break, we've we got to ask ourselves, what, what are we going to put our hope on? You may have heard that God helps out people. And you may know someone personally that God has really come through for them in a special way. And in your mind, you believe, and in your ears, you have heard that he is good. And you think, when things are hard, I really ought to trust him. And, you know, there are people that in different times of life, we we start thinking that way. I talked with uh, some people just this past weekend who were talking about the challenges of married life. And one of them was lamenting, saying, I've put in a lot of work, and I'm not getting much in return. I know this God thing worked out in their marriage, and it's not really working out in mine. And so, again, sometimes we, we see God more like a, like a magical charm. And we want him to work out for us in a certain way. And when he doesn't deliver for us in that certain way, we become kind of jaded. 
we become discouraged. Maybe we stop trusting him. Maybe we don't want to go back to him. And the question for you and for me is, when your warranty runs out, when other, other kind of real trial comes in your life, where's, where's your hope going to be? You may know that Jesus is an anchor in the storm. You may know that he provides joy for those who even, who even are suffering. But are you actually pursuing him in the good and in the bad time to trust him? And if not, what's holding you back? What's hindering you from trusting in Jesus through the ups and the downs of life? When suffering hits and it's dark, when news is bad and you know it's not going away, are you trusting Jesus? And if so, why not? If not, why not? What's holding you back from looking at him? Hard is coming. And whether you're experiencing it or not right now, hard will come. And what we want to do is prepare you for how to face hard when it comes. Today we're going to look at the story of two people. <clears throat> Scratchy throat from coaching baseball yesterday. We lost. <laughs> it was hard. I was leaning on this text now. Um, we're going to look at two people from the book of Mark, chapter 5, that learned how to pursue Jesus when hard was at its worst for them. And I want their example to be something that provides help for you to know how to have an unhindered pursuit of Jesus in the midst of life's challenges. We're in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We have those Bibles there in front of you in the pews. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one in front of you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's word. It's powerful, it's living, it's active, and that's why we preach it and preach it only. Mark chapter 5, verse 21, toward the end of your Bible. Last week we talked about this man whom Jesus went and crossed a sea to find this man who had, who had become consumed with demons. He was possessed by demons. And Jesus crossed a sea just to deliver this man from his bondage. But there was a group of people who saw what happened, and, and they were afraid of it. They were scared of Jesus because they were like, how did he do this? And they urged him, saying, please, Jesus, leave our land. Get out of here. Jesus gets back in the boat, comes across the sea to where he was previously, and there there's people who are there waiting, with, waiting for him with open arms. Again, the extremes that we see in terms of our approach to Jesus. Where are you at today, by the way? Based on what you've heard about Jesus, based on what you've seen from Jesus, are you the kind that pushes him away or the one who's running to him during good and during bad times? In verse 21, we see what takes place. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet <coughs> and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. I want to pause there. We see Jesus confronted immediately with a difficult situation on this side of the sea. A man who's given a name, Jairus, meets Jesus there. We're told he's a ruler of the synagogue, which means he wasn't a trained rabbi or a teacher, but he's the one who, who ran the synagogue. A synagogue was a place of worship for the Jewish people. 
that was not the temple. It was in different parts of the land. And the Jewish people in these lands would go to the synagogue to worship. They'd hear a message. They, they would hear readings of the scripture. They would pray together. And Jairus' job was to kind of manage all of that. Manage the facility, manage the building, manage the people who are going to do the readings and things like that. And here Jairus has a great need. We're told one detail about his daughter and that she is at the point of death. We're told later in the chapter that she's 12 years old. Here's a man who just left his daughter's bedside when she's at the point of death to come looking for Jesus. We've got to understand his despair at this point. We've got to understand how how dire the situation was, but what he also believed about Jesus. He left his 12-year-old daughter's bedside at the point of death to look for Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet. He gets right there, recognizing Jesus' authority, recognizing who Jesus was. And he tells him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. (coughs) Jairus recognizes things are pretty sad and dark here. And we could just imagine his angst. But imagine his thrill when he got there to the seashore and actually saw Jesus, the one he came for. And imagine how the kind of nervous anticipation he must have had when Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you, and begins to follow Jairus. It says there, and he went with him. See, Jairus must have been the kind of guy at this point who was hoping with caution. He was, had a, he was having a hard time here in life. But there was some way that was starting to break through here, a, a glimmer of hope. And so while Jesus and Jairus are walking back to Jairus' house, this story begins to have a rising tension. It starts to to thicken in the story. Look there in verse 25. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. They were all around Jesus as happened frequently with him. But then we're told in verse 25, someone else enters the story. There was a woman, no name given, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Here's a woman that enters into this story. As Jesus is walking with Jairus to his house to be an answer to Jairus' prayers. And this woman enters this story. She's given no name. And we see this frequently in the book of Mark, that there are people with no names, and and oftentimes we, we feel like we're no name, but, but look at her story. Look what she was able to do in the name of God and, and how God honored this woman and how God still works among us and in our lives. Though history may forget us, we are not forget, forgotten in God's sight. And we're told these details about this woman. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Just imagine all that came with that, the stigma of a woman who had a constant flow of blood. She couldn't get it to stop. Imagine how often she had to change her garments. They didn't have running waters and bathrooms for her to wash up in. 
So perhaps there was a stench attached to this woman, as well as the stigma. We're also told that she suffered much under physicians. She went out. She sought help. She wanted to be done with this discharge of blood. And for 12 years, she went to different doctors who provided different procedures, and she suffered a lot along there trying to find an answer to her physical problem. So imagine her need and her despair. And then we're told that she spent all that she had. So she's a poor woman because everything that she had to her name, she had put it at the doctor's feet to try to solve this problem of bleeding that she had. To make matters worse, she didn't get any better. And to make matters even more worse, she only grew worse. Mark gives us these details to help us see the the sad state that this woman, who has no name, was in. She enters this story, and all these different things start coming to the surface about her condition. You see, when someone was... Uh, had, a, had a, a bloody discharge under the law of Moses, that person became ceremonially unclean, which is to say they weren't allowed to be out in public amongst other people until they were able to cleanse themselves properly. Her status for 12 years was unclean. She had physical discomfort. Imagine the pain she was in after all these procedures. Physical pain. She knew she had a stench. She knew she was poor. She knew she was socially ostracized. And she knew that people, when they saw her, knew her story. See, this woman undoubtedly had 12 years of unanswered prayers. A Jewish woman growing up there in the land of of, of Israel. Undoubtedly spent time praying to God, saying, God, please do something about my circumstance. Hard was there for her in her life. This This was her plight. And, you know, a lot of us can relate to that. When hard times have come, we've prayed. And some of you guys have prayed for 12 years for something, something to change, something to give way. And your prayer life has begun to take a hit because you're discouraged. You're disappointed. But I I want us to see what this woman does in this great point of need. You see, she sees Jesus there, and she decides to respond. We see in verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She heard reports about him. She heard about Jesus. She hadn't seen him yet. She hadn't met him. But what she had heard was enough for her to believe, saying, Jesus, you can do something about my circumstance. And this woman's physical circumstance undoubtedly says something about her spiritual one. And it's the story of all of us. Our hearts are unclean before God. We're separated from God, in need of God. And here this woman is there saying, I've heard about Jesus and I need him. You know, I was thinking about this church family, and there are a lot of things in life that prevent us from believing that Jesus can meet us where we're at in the midst of our trials. And one thing I think is we have wrong expectations of what we want Jesus to do for us. Some of you guys know how hard it is to find the right barber. You know how how difficult it is. And when you see someone walk through the door with that fresh haircut, and you think, that's the barber I need. Who is this person? They give you the number. And you know your hair is just out of control, so you know you have a need. And you know you got to get to that barber ASAP. 
And you get there based on what you heard about this barber, based on what you saw of this barber, and you get there and sit in the chair. But even when you sit in the chair, if you're like me, you're still a little apprehensive. You're like, okay, it looked good on them, but is it going to look good on me now? And so you have these expectations that it's going to look nice, but you don't know. You're a little nervous. And so when the barber does their thing, cuts your hair, shows you the mirror, you have a determination to make at that moment. And usually it's, I'm never coming back here again, or yeah, I'll try this a second time. And a lot of us approach God that way. He's not a barber. We, we see our need for him. We see things are hard. We know life is difficult, and we know he's come through for other people. The God thing worked for someone else. Maybe I should try it myself. You've heard about it, so you said, you know, let me get in the chair there across from God. And you sit there a little apprehensive because you're expecting him to come through on the ways you want him to come through. And he's doing something in your life, and when it's over, you look in the mirror and say, okay, God, did you do what I asked you to do? And if it didn't turn out the way you expected, you say, God, I'm never coming back here again. And there are so many people who've done this with God. And maybe this is your story today. Maybe you said, I tried the God thing, and maybe you're going through this rhythm of life, even coming here on a Sunday, but in your heart, you don't believe God anymore. You've trusted him once, and he let you down. And I'm not going to trust him, and you've thought in your heart. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And you approach God with that same mindset. And this woman for 12 years was bleeding, and she could have done that. God, I've prayed before. God, I've, I've believed you. I even put money out to physicians thinking, God, you can heal me through them, and you've done nothing. She could have done that. And maybe there was times in her life she did do that and did give up on God. But her story here reminds us that what God wants for our lives may not align what we think we need, but it's also ultimately what, we, what he knows we need. And so whether we come to God and say, God, I need this, and decide to push him away, we've got to make a decision today. God, am I going to trust that you're in control, and whatever you bring my way, I'm going to believe you're working through it, even if it means hardship, even if it means un unanswered prayers in the ways that I want it. Now, now our theology, our belief about God, the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road when we have unmet expectations. Because when those times in life come, we've got a decision to make. Are we going to hold on to what we know is true of God? Or are we going to hold on to what we want him to do for us? Sometimes those line up. Sometimes they're very different. But what is true of God is this. Is that he is good. That he is perfect in his love that he knows what we need and works for our good, even if it means challenges. If we're not convinced of God's love, remember last Sunday, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to deliver a man from demon, uh, demonic oppression and possession. A man that people had given up on. He frees this man from his bondage, sends him out to show people how much God has done for you, gets back in the boat and crosses the sea again. See, God's love pursues us, and his love calls us now to be in pursuit of him. And here this woman has chosen to pursue Jesus. She could have a lot of things that stopped her from doing it. I'm unclean, she could have thought to herself. I can't even leave the house. She said, I'm bleeding right at this moment. 
She could have said, I'm, a, I'm socially outcast. She could have thought, man, I'm late. Here he is with Jairus now. He's busy. Or she could have thought, I'm barricaded. The crowd is here. She had a lot of valid excuses to not pursue Jesus. Same kind of valid excuses maybe we put up. But valid reasons are often excuses wrapped in a bow. Valid reasons are excuses wrapped in a bow. See, sometimes we can say, God, I'm not going to go after you, but you know, it's, I'm just busy with life. But sometimes maybe it's a real fear of rejection. Maybe there's wrong expectations of, of what God's going to do for you. Maybe we're just too self-centered and self-consumed. Maybe, maybe we don't recognize our need. Maybe life is good right now, and you don't need them. I, I want us to ask ourselves, what hinders us from pursuing Jesus? What hinders us from going after him and going at his feet and saying, Jesus, I need you every step of the way of my life. When things are good and when things are bad, I'm going to trust your will no matter what comes my way. Even if life is difficult, God, I'm going to surrender to you because I know you are good and you have what is best for me. Is that what we're going to do? You see, when we know we need Jesus and we desire him, we're going to pursue him. If someone told you today, in your need of a need of job, you're unemployed, you want a job, and they said, if you come in my office at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, you're going to get this job for sure, and it pays well and gives you benefits. What are you going to do? You're going to be there at 9 a.m. in the morning. You might be there at 8.30. But what happens if on the way there, your car breaks down? You get a flat tire on the Kennedy. What are you going to do? You're going to call someone. Hey, man, I need this job. No one answers the phone. What are you going to do? You're going to call an Uber. If there's no Uber by you, you're going to start running there. Because if you know you have a need and you desire, you're going to run to where that need's going to be met. And so Jesus says, come to me. He's calling us to himself. He's saying, I'm going to meet you where you need me to meet you most. And I'll provide for you strength through the trials. I'll give you joy in the midst of hardship. I will be with you throughout life. And if we know we need him and we want him, we need to go after him. And pursue him. Because ultimately, he's the one who enables us to do that as well. He's the one who puts that in our hearts. And, and here this woman exemplifies that. She let nothing hold her back from going after Jesus. And I, what I love here is the beautiful description of her faith. Her faith has legs on it. It's got feet attached to it. It's not a believing for the moment, but it's a believing and a pursuit. God has moved in her heart, and she has pursued him. So we see there in verse 27 that she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment. And in verse 28, we're told why. Because she thought to herself, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. But then verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? It's like a, a baseball player after hitting a home run saying, who out there is cheering for me right now? Like, Everybody is. And the disciples are like, look, Jesus, there's like hundreds, maybe thousands of people around you, touching you, pressing up on you, and you're asking who touched you? 
See, even though this woman is unknown by name to us, she was very known to Jesus. In verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Again, Jesus drawing the faith out of this woman. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She was transparent with God there. She was there real with Jesus. She was there saying, I'm exposed, but Jesus, you're the one I need. And I love what Jesus tells her. He says to her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter because that's what she was of God. You see, her deeper need was to the faith that would make her a child of God. And that's what Jesus affirms here, that she was a daughter of God there. And that her faith has made her well. It was her faith in Jesus. It was Jesus who did it for her. And Jesus points it, points it out. This woman let nothing hold her back from pursuing Jesus. And he met her where she was at. But if you remember the beginning of the story, you're thinking, you know, speaking of daughter, whatever happened to Jairus? Whatever happened to Jairus? And there in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? They stopped Jairus in his tracks. Imagine the disappointment that came over Jairus at that moment. Imagine the despair. Jesus, if you would have just got to my house quicker, this woman didn't stop you. Just maybe you would have got there on time. And see, Jesus was teaching this bleeding woman how to believe in Jesus, and now he's about to teach Jairus the same. Because Jesus not only has power over disease, but even power over death. And he tells Jairus, In verse 36, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion. Yes, there was a commotion. The little girl, the 12-year-old girl, had just died in their midst. And people were weeping and wailing loudly. In the ancient Near East, and even even in some Near Eastern cultures today, they would hire professional mourners for, for different times of, of need, especially in times of death. And the reason is they wanted to give a, perp, a, a proper mourning for the person that they loved. And these professional mourners and wailers knew what it was like to be in the midst of death. And so they are there. They know this girl is dead. And there's a big commotion. And there they are weeping and wailing loudly. Verse 39, when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And you just got to think, these people are like, Look, we've done this a long time, Jesus. We know a dead person when we see one. There's usually no breath in their lungs, that kind of thing. She's, she's not asleep, Jesus. In verse 40, they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And went in there with the child, or where the child was. And then, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. She's hungry. Feed her stomach. I'm just in awe of what's going on here in this story. It's like, God, God, what's taking place here, okay? Jesus comes back from the sea. Jairus meets him. My daughter's at the point of death. He's at Jesus' feet begging him. Jesus agrees to go with him. Now a bleeding woman shows up. She meets Jesus at his feet. She's touching him, pleading for for healing, and God heals her with a touch. He goes to Jairus' house. Now the daughter is dead. He raises her from the dead. What's going on here? Like, what's taking place here? What I want us to see are a number of different things. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he came declaring that the kingdom of God is here. And what he did was he, he, he brought forth a new, a new day that came partially that we look for ultimately one day. And when Jesus came in his ministry, he did a lot of healings. He did a lot of miracles. And God still does these things to our day. Many healings and many miracles. But the little girl eventually did die. She's not here among us. You see, God is a God who is in control. He is powerful. He can make a lady sit next to Dr. Heimlich when choking. But the truth is, this life is not where our hope is. Church family, we we ought to believe God for healing. We really do. We need to pray for it. We need to ask him for it. We've seen him do it. We believe him for it. But when we pray, we don't pray as if this life is where our hope is at. Because there are times God glorifies himself in suffering without the healing. And there are times he glorifies himself with the healing that is eternal. And here Jesus gives us a foretaste of what will one day be ultimately and perfectly So as we walk this life and we're filled with sickness and disease and death, let us pray that God would do things, do miraculous things. But let's not forget the greatest miracle he's ever done. And that's to take an enemy and make him a son and a daughter. So that through faith in Jesus, we know that God's wrath that was directed toward us rightfully was satisfied on the cross of Jesus where our sin was at. And through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. We are healed of our our, our disease of sin. And we are healed of ultimate death. And will one day be raised to life for eternity. And so we now live in this already not yet where, where God does that in part in different people's lives. But it's not yet fully because this is not our home. There's something greater on the way. Many faithful Christians suffer many horrific illnesses and diseases and deaths. But what we've seen throughout the book of Mark and what we see throughout the Bible is that even in suffering, God is glorified and he's working a purpose in your life and in my life. I remember times in my life where I was wounded because I asked God to do something. He didn't come through in the way I wanted it. And I believed beyond belief, beyond belief, and he didn't do it. And it wasn't for about a year later that I didn't realize that, that it had wounded me. And God was teaching me, are you trusting my will? Or are you trying to impose yours upon me? But even through that, he was glorifying himself through the trials and through the unanswered prayers. 
And he's doing that in your life if you would let him do that perfect work. We read 2 Corinthians earlier, and I love this passage. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Family, this this is a, a, a biblical view of suffering here. Your bodies are wasting away, as, are, as is mine. We are all slowly moving toward death. But what Paul says is, our, our outer, outer body doesn't tell the whole story because there's an inner man, there's an inner woman who's being renewed through faith in Jesus. And though our bodies may be wasting, our faith is growing. And we know that our, our Redeemer is near. Paul goes on to say, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And some of you are like, light momentary affliction? Does that man know suffering? I know there are some of you who have and are suffering. And by no means do we want to make light of that. We, we, We acknowledge that, family. And there are many we've suffered alongside of one another, oftentimes with tears, so your suffering is real. We know that. Your hurts are true. So we don't want to minimize that. But what we want to do is tell you to set your eyes upon the mountains to know where your help comes from, to know how to trust God and how to not be hindered in your pursuit of Jesus even when life is hard. Paul knew suffering. He said later on in that chapter, that earlier in that chapter, we are afflicted in every way. He says we've been crushed but not perplexed, driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And you ask, well, what does that look like for Paul, though? Well, what does his suffering look like? Later on in that chapter, or in that book, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, he says he suffered many imprisonments, Countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Is that the Apostle Paul you know? We need to know him like this. He says, and apart from other things, on top of that, he says, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He says, who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. He says, I, I've, I've suffered, he says. Life hasn't been easy for me, he says. But then in chapter 12, he talks about how he has this, this thorn in his flesh. And he didn't tell us what it is, but, it, but he says it's like a messenger from Satan. It was a hardship that he underwent. It could have been a physical condition. It could have been an illness. It could have been something, but whatever it was, it was on his life. And he says that he prayed, asking God to take it away. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. 
Surely he could have said, God, look, look at all I've gone through. At least, at least this one, God, take it away. He says three times, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. In verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I know there are some of you today who suffer. There are many sufferings. There are illnesses. There are diseases. There are wounds. There are hurts. There are heartaches. But I want you to know that there is a God whose strength is being made perfect in your weakness. And through your weakness, he's going to exalt you and bring himself glory in your suffering. So yes, this light momentary affliction is storing up for you an eternal weight of glory. Psalm 103, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases. And when I read that, I ask, when, Lord? When? When will this all be done? And I think of Revelation 21 that provides and infuses hope for all of God's children. Whether we receive physical healing in this life, there's one that awaits us that is far more glorious. John has this vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's not our home, family. The sea was no more. He said, then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This awaits us, church. He says, he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor cancer, nor death, nor hospitalizations, nor loss of loved ones, nor abuse. It's all going to be gone. Why? Because the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So when Jesus meets this bleeding woman, and when Jesus meets Jairus and his family and his 12-year-old daughter, he gives us a glimpse of what we can taste in this life, but he gives us a glimpse of what will be fulfilled in its entirety. One day. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, we ask you to do this today. I plead with you. Because life with Jesus is far greater than life without him. He will sustain you in your trials. He will hold you in your suffering. He will redeem your life from the pit. He will crown you with steadfast love in mercy. And so what God tells you today is to believe in Jesus. 
to believe he died for your sins, the greatest disease of all. To believe that through faith in him you are forgiven. Because the Bible says when you do that, you become adopted into God's family. And you become his son. You become God's daughter. God becomes your father. And he says, one day you're going to be with me in glory forever. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you to do so today and experience the joys of life with Jesus, life in Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus or if you are a follower of Jesus and are not pursuing him, I ask you, what is holding you back? Is it the fear of the stigma of calling yourself a Christian? Maybe it's the stench of your own sin that you're aware of. Maybe it's the fear of rejection, that what if I reach out and Jesus doesn't meet me? Maybe it's the past expectations that God didn't meet, but maybe he's showing you today he's doing something different there. He actually was with you when you thought he wasn't. Whatever valid reason that you've wrapped up in a bow and said, that's why I'm not pursuing Jesus, put it away. Say, Jesus, I'm I'm done with that. I, I need you. God, I need you. How do you pursue Jesus? Well, just as this woman did, she knew her need. Just as Jairus did, he knew his need. And what they did is they went to Jesus. They got down at his feet. Both of them are found at the feet of Jesus. And they believed him. And their faith had legs on it. It made them have action. We are not saved by works. But when God saves us, he drives us to works because we're saying, God, you love me, you've forgiven me, I want to live for you. And he's calling us to live with faith that has action. So that means crying out to God, pursuing him in prayer, family. Your Father in heaven wants you to commune with him. He wants to talk with you. So let's talk to him. Let's plead with him. Let's rejoice in him, saying, God, I worship you. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Even in my suffering, I'm choosing to trust you because I know that you are good and I know that there awaits for me an eternal weight of glory. So God, I want to live to give you glory as long as there's breath in these lungs. That's how we pursue him, is to open his word and let his word be what fills our soul with joy and instruct us about who he is and what he's done and who we are and how we ought to live now in response to that. We pursue him by surrounding ourselves with brothers and sisters who can hold us accountable, who can love us through the dark valleys in life. And we can pursue him by doing as he told the man in Mark 5, to go and tell God what others have, what he has done for him and how he's had mercy on us. Don't let nothing, 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 nothing hinder you from pursuing Jesus today. And let's at his feet, bow before our Savior who's given us life. Let's pray, church. Oh, Father, I lift up those right now who would say this sermon is where I'm at. I'm suffering. I'm facing hardship. I'm overwhelmed with my circumstances. Father, I pray for those who are losing faith because of their illness, because of their 
trials. And God, I pray that their faith would not waver. I pray, God, that they would reach out to you as that woman did. And know, God, that in your presence there is fullness of joy. That you say, whoever seeks me will find me. May they knock and know that the door is opened. May they ask and receive. So God, I pray for for that brother, that sister, that youth today. And Lord, I ask, God, that our faith would be in you and that we would trust that you're in control no matter what comes our way. Father, we pray these things in the name of our great Savior and the ultimate healer of our soul. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brooke family, let's rise to our feet.